Hello and welcome to part two of this episode on the marvel that was C.B. Fry with my special guest, Fry's biographer, Ian Wilton. My name is Tom Ford. Don't forget to listen to part one to hear Ian discuss Fry's early life, his writing and batting style and his relationship with his wife, Beatrice. A large asterisk that has always existed next to Fry's name has been his meeting with Adolf Hitler in the 1930s and how he never quite disassociated himself from the horrors of the Holocaust. How do you explain this relationship today? I think it's one of those things that you have to see in the round. Um, I think probably the first thing to say is that C.B. Fry had sort of demonstrated a fair bit of political naivety when he was standing uh, for Parliament in the, in the 1920s. And that political naivety, I think, endured right through the, the 1930s, up to and including the period when he went to, went to Germany. Um, and you know, he wasn't the only person to, I think, prove to be really gullible in his dealings with the sort of Hitler regime. Most obviously, David Lloyd George, the former British Prime Minister, went to Germany and he was impressed by what he was shown and spoke favourably about it afterwards. And he was someone who normally would regard as very politically astute and hard-headed. So he made serious mistakes there, which have obviously negatively affected his reputation. And likewise, C.B. Fry, a much less sophisticated figure politically, uh, did the same. So it's you know absolutely not to his credit that he made those mistakes. I think one point I would make in his favour is that he had that meeting, uh, that visit to Germany in the sort of mid 1930s, not long after it emerged from this sort of six-year period of seclusion and acute mental illness. Then he went to Germany and then he wrote in those sort of unwisely positive terms about it in Life Worth Living, published. Uh, as the Second World War approached. And, you know, he shouldn't have done that. He should have revised his opinions in the meantime. But in a sense, there is an element of honesty, which I suppose you, you have to admire, might be too strong a word. Um, but yeah, he wrote in sort of 38, 39, uh, about the perceptions that he uh, sort of hit him about Germany in sort of 34, 35. And he didn't change his words to take account of, you know, subsequent subsequent events. Again, I think that's a sort of naivety on, on his part. He should have done. He should have realised more what was going on and changed his verdict and his words accordingly. Um, he didn't do that. And, he, you know, he's paid a heavy price for it reputationally. And certainly his daughter-in-law uh, said to me that she thought that, you know, one of the reasons why he didn't get um, honours in public life subsequently was because of, you know, what he the visit he'd undertaken, then how he'd written about it in the, in the late 1930s. Um, a couple of things there. One is, you know, a number of people have written, was he, uh, you know, in a sense, some kind of pro-Nazi or a Nazi sympathiser? Was he, there's one person who even made a claim that C.B. Fry was at risk of being um, interred in the, uh, in the 1930s as a sort of Nazi sympathiser. And I think that's wrong. And in particular, I think that's wrong because of... Um, uh, a film evening that was organised by David Frith, the great uh, cricket historian, and he found something at the Imperial War Museum, and it was a film made in about 39 or 1940, um, and it was a sort of 
official government propaganda piece. Um, and to my amazement, it was C.B. Fry uh, interviewed at the Mercury, lots of footage of you know, boys at the Mercury playing cricket and doing other stuff. So certainly the British government view of C.B. Fry at the time was, you know, he, he wasn't someone who epitomised, you know, German values, Nazi values, anything like that. Uh, on the contrary, you know, he view of this sort of propaganda film. He was a representative of, you know, Britain, Britain's finest fighting spirit, independence and so on. So I think that was significant to, to see that. That was really significant. I think it was a really low profile film that, you know, David found with his sort of characteristically thorough research. So that made me think that the sort of like the official establishment um, or government view of C.B. Fry hadn't been that negatively affected by the visit to Germany or what he subsequently wrote about it. Um, but yeah, he did pay a price for it. I think that's one of the reasons why he didn't get the honours that might have come his way in later life. I think another really important fact to, to bear in mind is the First World War and what happened to his brother. Now, when I wrote the, uh, the book, I knew very little about uh, his brother but discovered more and more about it um, as time went by. And in particular, there's a great book I read by someone who wrote about the experience of British prisoners of war in the First World War. We know a lot about the experience of British prisoners of war, allied prisoners of war in the Second World War. Films like Great Escape, shown every Christmas in the UK, for example. Uh, but I read this book about the experience of allied prisoners of war in the First World War. It was a real eye-opener. And in particular, there was a reference there to a, a major fly from the Royal Army Medical Corps and what had happened to him and a bunch of his colleagues. And it's a, a terribly, terribly sad story, but basically CB's um, younger brother Walter was in the Royal Army Medical Corps. Um, he was captured early on in the First World War, probably by about December 1914. And not long after being captured and uh, held prisoner, he and a, a bunch of Royal Army Medical Corps colleagues were told, well, would you be willing to go to a prisoner of war camp, where amongst others we've got, you know, there are Russians, there are French prisoners, and there are British prisoners, I think we should be willing to go and help them, you know, meet their medical needs. And Fry and his colleagues said they were happy to do that. And then they're on the train to go to this camp called Wittenberg, and it's only on the train that Walter Fry and his colleagues get told there's a big typhus outbreak at this camp, and there's virtually nothing in the way of medicines or medical equipment to, to help anyone who's you know, looking to assist the prisoners of war there. Um, and the conditions are appalling, genuinely appalling. And Walter Fry goes there, gets shown round, gets shown round the sort of particular British prisoners of war in their conditions. And there's an official inquiry into this episode in this prison of war camp later on in the war. And it says, in black and white, Walter Fry went into this and it came out and broke down because of what he'd seen, the condition of the conditions in which the British troops were being held, the sort of lice, lice infestations and lice apparently just transfer, uh, transmit typhus really, really quickly. Um, gangrene sets in, the, the conditions are just absolutely appalling. And without any sort of proper medical equipment to protect them or to, to treat people, Walter Fry catches the disease and he dies within a matter of you know, weeks or a couple of months. Um, and this becomes a very notorious episode in the First World War. As I said, there's, later on, there's um, an official uh, British government or British army inquiry uh, into what happened, uh, and it is called, from memory, the horrors of Wittenberg. Now, some reports written and published at that time might be exaggerated, perhaps, for propaganda purposes, but you know, a lot of what's in there 
um, comes across as very factual and very, very, very grim indeed. And that is, you know, uh, it, it explains how and why Walter Fry died in the First World War. And so there must surely be at least an extent to which C.B. Fry is conscious of that, conscious of the way he's lost his only brother. And so maybe that might explain why in the 1930s he's uh, so determined to pursue the sort of rapprochement uh, between Britain and Germany, as were so many other people. And it was you know, the official policy of the government at the time, later disowned, but it was the official policy of the, the national governments, Baldwin and then particularly Chamberlain. So maybe that explains to an extent um, why C.B. Fry was willing to you know, do the visit to Germany, to have actually some boys from Hitler Youth visit the military uh, subsequently. Um, but yeah, yeah what, he, what he wrote and what he did with benefit of hindsight doesn't look good. Um, but I think it does need to be seen in, in the context, particularly what happened to his brother. Um, and also let's bear in mind that when he went to, to Germany, this was not long after he'd been in seclusion for six years with a sort of, you know, huge period of mental illness. So I think there are you know, allowances you can make, not excuses, but I think there are allowances that you need to bear in mind who he was, the family experience that he'd had, and the acute mental illness that he had before he went to Germany. But I think fundamentally, as he'd shown earlier in his career, he was politically very naive, um, and so he reached some very flawed judgments and made the mistake of you know, writing about them, perhaps too honestly, when he did in his uh, book. So Fry had many faults as a human, as we know, many uh, eccentricities, uh, and he was prone to nervous breakdowns. But as you interpret in your book, he was also clearly suffering from some form of mental illness, uh, something which just wasn't easily diagnosed in his day. Um, firstly, how did you come to this conclusion? Uh, and should this change our modern assessment of his character today? Um, yeah, I think it's one of the things I discovered um, as a result of the hardback being published. So I put in um, a fair bit about all that I knew about his uh, mental difficulties at Oxford and then his breakdown, his fuller breakdown in the, the 1920s. And one of the great things about the, the hardback was then someone came back to me, um, you know, who had a impeccable medical credentials, and he said, okay, from what you've written, this is what I think he had, and this is how it would be treated now. And it was a form of um, depression, uh, acute depression, and it was a form of, um, I think, bipolar disorder as well. So for C.B. Fry, life was, you know, never, never grey. It was always, you know, either technicolour with the highs, or it was very dark and black with the lows. Um, and as I've indicated earlier, I think he had you know, some of these uh, problems first manifested themselves at Oxford when he faced a, a variety of pressures, not least financial. And then they, uh, there were some signs of things not being quite right at various stages um, in his counting international cricketing career. Um, but yeah, they come, they come to a head in the 1920s. And that's when he sort of disappears from public view for about six years. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, a couple of reasons why I sort of 
got attracted by the subject of CB fry in the first place, were a couple of things I, I learned um, sort of from my grandfather. I never actually met him, so I heard this from my, my mum, his, his, uh, her, her dad. And two things. One is that um, my grandfather had been in the crowd once at Southampton when CB fry was playing for Southampton. Um, as the only amateur in the team. And someone from the crowd shouted out to him, Fry, you're the biggest pro of the lot, sort of confirming this, this thing that he was a, a shamateur. Um, and the second thing I heard was that uh, my grandfather had bumped into C.B. Fry in, I don't know when exactly it would have been, but it was in the New Forest. And I found out um, during the course of my research that mm-hmm. one of the people who could get through to C.B. Fry uh, in the sort of late 20s, late 20s, early 30s, when he had this really serious mental illness, was a, a guy who was the head uh, head teacher, headmaster, as they called in those days, of the school in the New Forest. And um, yeah, so my father, grandfather, had bumped into CB5 when he was on one of these visits to this guy who could get through to him, and, um, who seemed to have a sort of calming influence on him during that you know, period of acute mental illness that he had. So that's the sort of family connection that led me to CB5. And yeah, it provided, it's helpful. It provided a couple of insights to the sort of shamanism thing, um, but also to the, the, me- the extent of the mental health difficulties that he had spoken about. Well, let's turn our attention now to slightly ha- happier subjects. Let's return to his uh, cricket statistics. Um, and they're fascinating to pour over for a multitude of reasons. So, uh, sit back in. I'll just um, I'll read mm. these through. Jump in if you want to. We can discuss them afterwards. Um, so CB Fry made his Test debut in February 1896 in the first Test of a three-match series in South Africa. Uh, it was a match made famous for George Lohman's uh, 15 wickets for the match, um, and he made his final Test match appearance, as you mentioned earlier, in that triangular series in August of 1912 versus uh, the Australians. Um, At a lower level, at first-class level, his career spanned from 1892 until uh, 1921-22. So quite an extraordinary long first-class career. You mentioned earlier how he came back after the First World War for a handful of first-class matches. No test matches, though. Um, If we look at the actual numbers... um, I'll just briefly go over the bowling figures because we can't forget he did do a bit of bowling. It's yeah. not really yeah. what he's remembered for. He bowled he bowled 10 balls in test cricket for a total of three runs. Um, at first class level, um, he took 166 wickets for 4,872 runs. Best bowling, uh, six for 78 um, a question without notice, Ian. What sort of bowler was was he? Was he uh, was he a, a medium pace bowler, a spin bowler? Uh, I think from memory, he was sort of medium medium brisk. Um, right. Obviously, the, the thing that he's sort of most remembered for is the sort of questionable action that he had, which he, is why he sort of starts off as an all rounder, and then ultimately becomes, like you say, a sort of specialist batsman because his his action is very much sort of frowned upon increasingly over time. He's regarded as right. a thrower, gets no ball frequently. So that brings an end to his um, bowling career. Well, one of the things that sort of, on rereading the book, that I was sort of struck by in a way that probably hadn't uh, hit me before, was the gap between his bowling average, which I think is about 30, and his overall first-class average, which is just over 50. 
Um, that's a hell of a gap because you always say that if your um, batting average is better than your bowling average, that's a sign of a, a good all rounder. And if it's like five runs better, 10 runs better, that's a seriously good all rounder. Um, but I don't know whether many people have actually got the sort of the, uh, the, the net plus 20 that CP Fry had, you know, batting average of 50, bowling average of 30, based on, you know, a not insignificant number of first class wickets, I think 166, you say. Mm. Uh, I'd be interested to know what other people. Uh, think and what uh, figures they can put forward about people who've got uh, uh, all rounders who've taken, you know, minimum of 100, 150 first class wickets and who've then ended their career with a, a you know, plus 20 gap between their batting average and their bowling average. Um, but it's pretty impressive. I'm sure someone is listening who will no doubt be able to tell us. So please write <laughs> in if you do know. Um, so if we if we turn our attention to his batting, um, I'm going to actually start with uh, the first class figures. So he played 394 first class matches, um, batting 658 times uh, for 43 not outs, scored 30,886 runs with a high score of 258 not out. So his average first class cricket was 50. Um, and you mentioned earlier, fell six centuries short of the 100, so 94 centuries, 124 half centuries, and he took 239 catches. Now, uh, in the Test Arena, he played for England 26 times, batting 41 times, uh, three not outs. He scored 1,223 runs, with a high score of 144, an average of 32.18. So the average at first class level is 50. It drops to 32 at test level. Um, so two centuries he scored in those 41 innings uh, and seven half centuries. Um, so Ian, I'm going to pose this question to you. Um, uh, 94 centuries which i think at the time of the first world war uh was the third most behind wg grace of course and tom haywood um but he just couldn't seem to transition the first class form which was often extraordinary form like form first class cricket had ever seen before he couldn't quite transition that into the test arena and there's this great imbalance between his first class and test record. Um, why do you think that is? I think there are a number of factors for it. I think first and foremost is the fact that you know he, he did suffer from nerves. There are a number of contemporary articles that refer to him being quite highly strung. And in particular, he seemed to struggle early on. So he could settle, he could then get more confidence and play well. Uh, but there are a whole number of instances where he got out quite quickly because he was nervy, scratchy, and liable to that early dismissal. Um, yeah, he tended to, once he could, once he settled, then he could play a lot better. And you know, some of the best innings that he played were regarded by his contemporaries as extremely good innings. And as for first class, uh, his first class career, a lot of people would say you know, he could score runs on wickets that other people just couldn't cope with. I think there's an example in the triangular tournament which we talked about that was a terribly terribly wet summer uh, there was a wet wicket and he'd mastered it in a way that no one else could and I think C.B. Fry from memory gets out 
Tiger Smith, the you know, the wicketkeeper, comes in and he says to to Smith, you know, just effectively hang on in there. And Smith's view was, no, 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 I don't want to hang on in there. I want to get out. I want all my teammates to get out as quickly as possible because we want to get the Australians in on this pitch as soon as we can because it's such an awful batting surface that you know Prime might have been able to cope with it, but no one else can. So um, he did actually get out for a naught, I think several other the England lower order where the backs and design got out very quickly as well. Uh, they got the Australians, I think it was, into that and England wrapped it up quite quickly. So that sort of showed CB Fry at his best. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. You know, when you have a, 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 as big a gap as 50 to 30 between your first class average and your test average, um, then, you know, it does mean that people are going to say, you know, that suggests a batsman not of the very, very highest class. And I think, you know, uh, there are comparisons we can make with players from the more recent past, like Graham Hick, who just scored runs for, for fun in county cricket, but at the found test cricket, you know, much, much harder uh, thing to cope with. Um, and, you know, I think I remember players like Merv Hughes trying to sort of rough him up, not only with the ball, but with the glares and everything like that, because they sort of felt that um, temperamentally Graham Hick wouldn't enjoy that and that would affect his performance. Um, so I think C.B. Fry was was the same. I think he did struggle uh, mentally uh, when he was out of the uh, out of the middle from time to time. Um, and so it's, again, it's one of these things like we were saying earlier on. I think there are a number of things he had this extraordinary sporting career, but there are just a few things where you wish he'd done things just slightly differently because then that would put him just out there ahead of anyone else. So you know, if he had got the FA Cup winners medal, that would have been the sort of crowning glory on his footballing career. Um, Likewise with cricket, if he'd got 100-100s, and likewise if he'd actually made a better fist of uh, test cricket, and you know, I think if he averaged I don't know, late 30s, 40, no one would be, be querying whether he was a genuine, genuine test batsman. Um, but I think, yeah, if you look at the overall scores that he had, the weight of runs that he scored, uh, the record numbers of you know centuries, double centuries, etc., etc., and also all these sort of contemporary. Uh, Report saying how he could cope with attacks and particularly with uh, with wickets that no one else could really master. That does suggest that he, despite the modest test record, he was a batsman of very very high quality. I just again rereading the book the other day and I was um, came across a section. I think it might have been a, sorry, a Sussex versus Leicestershire match, something like that. And uh, yeah, I was amazed by what I wrote. I said that you know not only did CB Fry score as many runs as all his teammates put together. But in this one match, he scored as many runs as everyone else in the match put together. I mean, that's an extraordinary feat. And then again, you look at the, particularly like the double hundreds and the six successive hundreds, things like that. These were, you know, truly extraordinary feats. And yeah, he had some you know, amazing years. And there were other times when, you know, sometimes he was playing cricket, you know, sometimes he was writing, sometimes he was running the mercury. He was a bit in and out. He didn't have the opportunity to devote himself to cricket as fully as he, he might. You know, had he been able to do so and had he been able to do those Australian tours that we were talking about earlier on, I think you'd undoubtedly be talking about someone who got, you know, 150 plus first class hundreds rather than the matchup that he did get. It's quite extraordinary. And just on that point, um, I want to actually uh, read a section from your book. Uh, it comes from page 461 because his, the statistics or the numerical statistics that I read out before don't do justice to all of his achievements. 
Um, because, and you touched on it just briefly there, there's an extraordinary number of uh, feats he achieved, which perhaps are largely forgotten today. So I'm just going to quote you from your book. You wrote, he achieved a number of feats which had been beyond every other batsman in the history of the first-class game. As a century maker, for instance, CB's record was truly historic. He hit more centuries in a season than anyone else. He created a new record by scoring 100 in each innings of a match on no fewer than five occasions, and he achieved the unprecedented feat of following a century with a double century in the same game. He also hit more first-class double hundreds than any of his predecessors, even though they included figures as illustrious as W.G. Grace. Moreover, Fry established a new world record by scoring six successive centuries, twice as many as any previous batsman, and a performance which, over a century later, is still unsurpassed. And of course, it has that last uh, feat, the six successive centuries, has been equaled um, by uh, two other batsmen, and it took someone like Don Bradman to equal it. So uh, it really does put his astonishing first-class feats uh, into context when we think of... uh, what he achieved, but what he achieved uh, really as a pioneer. No one had done this until he did. And unfortunately, it's largely forgotten today. Again, also rereading the book, I was struck by the number of occasions where he also got a, a hundred in warnings of a match and then would get 90-something in the other. Um, mm. And I don't know whether that was nerves, like we've talked about before, whether that was nerves afflicting him when he got into the nervous 90s. Um, but yeah, he did get a sort of record number of you know 200s in the same game. And he came close on a whole bunch of occasions to to doing it uh, even more frequently. Now, following his playing career, Fry remained involved in cricket as a writer, which uh, you've already spoken about. What can you tell us about his post-playing involvement in the game and how it uh, progressed from the playing field to the uh, writer's box? Um, I think you have that sort of gap between him finishing playing in sort of 1921, 22. Um, then there's a sort of period of sort of disengagement with the game, quite a long period of disengagement with the game, because there's this lengthy period of, of mental illness. Uh, but the extraordinary thing is then when he comes back with a bang, writing about cricket in the super dry surgical standard and it's a bit like when we're talking about you know him writing about conditions in Australia where he'd never actually played you have him writing about players like Bradman in quite an informed way and I don't think he'd seen Bradman before 1934 when he's writing about him in uh, in the evening standard but yeah he has that confidence to just immediately uh, pontificate about a player or sum a player up or uh offer some real insights into the sort of player, his character, or his technique. So I think, that again, like we were saying earlier, I think it reflects his supreme sort of technical understanding of the game, but also this confidence that, you know, he can write confidently and make judgments about people he's never really seen before. Um, but it works brilliantly because, the, as we were saying previously, CP5, CP5 says columns of great, great success. Um, and so, yeah, you have this extraordinary record of C.B. Fry as a writer from, uh, you know, starts in the 1890s, um, 
goes through to the 1930s and it covers everything from his magazine to his autobiography to his front page columns of the Evening Standard. And I just don't think anyone else uh, played the game has really matched that record. And I was particularly struck actually by something I read about um, C.B. Fry's Says column uh, when someone pointed out that you know, he ceased being the England captain in 1912. He then comes back to write C.B. Fry Says from 1934. So you know, he's, he's getting the job um, on the stand of 22 years after being the England captain. So it's not like he's trading on immediate or recent glories. Um, it, he's doing it um, on the basis of his ability, I think, as a writer. Yes, there's an enduring reputation, but it's um, really through his merit as a writer. And the remarkable thing is that, you know, C.B. Fry says column is unlike any, anyone in Britain, I think, has, has read before. It's an entirely new type of uh, sports writing. Um, and he, he masters it at that sort of late stage of his life. He masters that complete new form of writing. Um, and it's a, it's a brilliant success, a late life success. I was really shocked to read in your book, Ian, how he was grossly snubbed in his lifetime from the Sussex, Hampshire and MCC establishments, uh, possibly because of his eccentricities. Has there been a correction since? I think when I sort of reflected on this um, and thought, well, you know, why didn't he have these sort of honorary posts really at Sussex, which he left quite acrimoniously, um, Hampshire or MCC? Um, and yeah, each of them probably should have done more to to recognise the contributions that he made to the game. But I do actually sort of sympathise with the people who are on the you know, Sussex committee, MCC committee or Hampshire committee, because I think he would have been a very difficult committee man, if you like. Um, he, by the time he was sort of well into his retirement from cricket itself, um, he had become rather eccentric. He had um, developed a real liking for the sound of his own voice. So I do think that he would have been a difficult person to have on some of those committees. I think he would have, you know, not only did he, you know, back Freeman, but I think he would have, could have talked for him in those committee rooms. So I think he might have been a difficult person to to have on that kind of role. Maybe he'd have been better as some sort of, you know, figurehead rather than as an active uh, committee member. So I do understand, I think, why some of those sort of honours um, didn't come didn't come his way. There was a sort of little bit of um, a sense of readjustment at, at MCC. Actually, when I worked there, because Charles Fry, his grandson, became the chairman of the club and then the president of the club, I know perhaps not surprisingly, that was the point at which um, a portrait of C.B. Fry, a very good portrait of C.B. Fry in later life, uh, came into the committee room. So CB did get into the MCC committee room, um, but in portrait form rather than in real life form. Um, but that was a sort of, you know, a measure of respect to the to the man. Also, um, Warden College commissioned um, probably 15 years ago now, uh, a, a painter, painting of CB Fry that sort of was given reasonable uh, pride of place in their sort of dining dining hall. And myself and the family were kindly invited by the college to go up to a, a dinner that sort of marked at Sun Bailey. I didn't think it was as good as the portrait of C.B. Fry that hangs in the, um, sort of did hang in the committee room at Lords, but it was nice to see uh, Warden College, you know, honouring C.B. Fry in that way. One final question, Ian, and my listeners will know I like to end each interview with this line of question. Um, what would C.B. Fry think of modern cricket today? Would he enjoy, for example, day-night cricket, T20 and women's cricket, or would he hold on to the traditions of the grand old game? Goodness, that's a really big and a really hard question. Um, 
I think women's cricket would have been quite positive about. And there's a photograph um, in the book of CB right towards the end of his life at Lord's coaching, I think it was the visiting New Zealand women's team. And so that indicated a degree of positivity about women's cricket at that stage in the early, early 1950s. So I think he was ahead of the game there probably. I think he encouraged his daughters from memory to play cricket. So again, there's that sort of positivity about women uh, playing the game. Um, and as we've said earlier, you know, he could be a real innovator. We've talked about you know, the way he changed batsmanship by playing more off the back foot, playing more onto the, the leg side. Uh, also an innovator in terms of his role in bringing the triangular tournament about. So I think there are lots of things that he would have been, there's a lot of these innovations that he'd been quite receptive to. Um, but some of the others, I wonder, I wonder whether Basball would have quite been up C.B. Fry's street, for example. Um, I think maybe not. I think he would regret things like, um, you know, the decline of Oxford v Cambridge and stuff like that. Those sort of very traditional fixtures. I think he would miss them. Um, but I think there was um, an innovator in there. Yes, a sort of gentleman amateur and a traditionist in some ways, but an innovator as well. So... I think it's quite hard to, to judge which way he'd have gone on some of these things, but I do think on women's cricket, probably yes, he would be very supportive. Well, Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and for returning to the subject of C.B. Fry. Your book, C.B. Fry, King of Sport, is a truly exceptional biography of not only the cricketer, but the man as a whole. A reminder to anyone listening that Ian is currently researching about the first Cricket World Cup from 1975, and he'd love to hear from anyone connected with that first tournament. Ian, thanks again. Thank you, Tom. Thanks very much indeed. That's all from me for this episode. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter and YouTube and explore previous episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Tom Ford. Bye for now. (laughs) 